Uh, we're going to be in the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes, so please go ahead and, and turn there. We're actually going to, to begin with our text this morning. Uh, it's not a long text that we have before us, but it's not an easy text either. But I hope that it will be a text which helps us to know how to respond and live as Christians in a world where wickedness abounds and where evil is celebrated. And what we are ultimately meant to be thinking about in this text as we approach it with eyes that have been opened up and enlightened by the Holy Spirit is the government of Christ. It is the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus that I think ultimately we should be seen when we are reading this passage. So let's read the text, and then after we read it, we'll ask the Holy Spirit for help as we consider it in, in prayer. So the reading of the Word of God, beginning at verse 8 in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. That is God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and apply it to our lives. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, your holy word, Lord. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow. It discerns us, Lord. It is able to make us complete and equipped for every good work. And so we plead with you for mercy this morning that we might rightly understand it. God, that you would permit me to only say what is true and, and permit those who are are here to listen to only hear what is true. We ask that you, Christ, would be exalted and that you would show yourself to us clearly that we would rightly be able to divide your word and to boast in Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, as I was mentioning, this is, this is not an easy text. Uh, the subject matter itself is pretty difficult, but even more, most commentaries and commentators don't seem to know what to do with it. If you were to consult five different commentaries on this passage, you would most likely come away with five different understandings of what uh, the author is trying to say here. And, it, and it's especially hard when you're looking just at these two verses here in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is obscure here, especially in verse 9. And that has led to some considerable variations within the different English translations. Translators, they disagree on how to handle the syntax here. In other words, how to take the words in Hebrew and then put them in order in English so that we can understand it rightly. And so when you focus on just these two verses, especially, then it can prove challenging. But I think that we can be helped if we consider the context of the passage, the immediate context of it, but also the larger context of the book as a whole, and because of that context, I think that the ESV actually does a faithful job of rendering the Hebrew into English here. And so we don't need to provide a different translation of the Hebrew to English. The ESV, I think, does a, a, a right job, and we get that from the context. But not only is this passage difficult, really this, this whole book is difficult. 
It is not easy to preach exegetically, verse by verse, through this book, because the author of this book is dealing with these big questions of life, these paradoxical problems that exist in the world, and he's, he's hitting them at somewhat rapid fire, and he's moving from one to another, and then to another, and so on and so on, until he comes to an end of a section where he offers a brief conclusion. And so further, we want to be careful with the text as well, too, making sure that Christ is preached from it and not simply offering moralism. So I can trust that we can be patient for a moment as we kind of remember what Kohelet is doing here, as we consider the context, so that we can, I think, rightly and better understand this passage that we have for us this morning. The book, Ecclesiastes, starts out by saying, "...the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem." And from that, we gather, of course, that Solomon is its author, the second wisest man who ever lived. And he identifies himself as Kohelet. That's where we translate this English word preacher. But Kohelet, if you remember, it contains in it more than just the notion of a preacher or a teacher. He's a collector of thoughts. He's a, a pundit, really. He is an expert in many fields. And the fact that he would have experienced so much and known so much makes sense, being that he was such a great king in Israel. You remember Solomon's story as it's recorded in the Old Testament? Remember, he was given great wisdom from God so that he could be discerning and so he could govern the kingdom. And that's what he did. But he didn't finish very well. He amassed great wealth. He had all of these experiences, but he had 700 wives and 300 concubines that he had engaged with. And so Ecclesiastes is this record of Kohelet, explaining to us the things that he learned along the way. Now, he's not always giving us answers, but he's helping us to think of the hard but meaningful questions of life so that our eyes can be turned to the Lord during these times and so that they can be taken off of ourselves and then instead put to Christ who is our sufficient hope always. And rather than having to learn from our own experiences, we are greatly blessed by God doing this kindness to us by uh, causing in His sovereignty Solomon to go through these things so that he may write about them so that we can read about them and study about them so we don't have to experience the same trials and hardships ourselves. We are blessed to be able to learn from another. So as Kohelet considers the vanity of life, this Habel, remember that's vanity in the Hebrew is Habel, he's desiring to help us have joy and delight in God over what troubling, over whatever troubling matters the world might put before us. He's teaching us not to be anxious, to not be consumed with self, to not be drowning in worry, but instead to have joy and delight in God Almighty through the very things that make the world anxious and consumed with self. But the way he does this, in part, is what makes this book difficult to preach verse by verse in. Kohelet presents before us all of this vanity, all of these all of these different problems, there's a wide range of them that he covers. And then really only at the end of the section, we identify four of them. At the end of the section, he offers a brief encouragement about it, a simple inclusion about it. So this makes it difficult to preach this book because you almost have to know the end before you know the beginning. And if we can keep his conclusions in mind as we approach the different texts in this book, we can protect ourselves from making those kinds of mistakes which say that this book is a depressing book, or which says that this book is, is a book that is you know, lacking joy, or that this book, the, the, the preacher mistake, which just turns this book into a bunch of moralistic lessons. 
Like, do this or don't do that, you know, or don't do this and do that. Because really, this book is the opposite of those things. And there is good news at the end of each section. So truly, I would argue that it is a, it is a book about having joy amidst the trials that we are presented with. And so these will be general statements on the four main sections of the book. And we should also remember that, you know, if we're going to divide this into sections, we're making four big sections. And you could probably, if you of course certainly could, take little sections in those four sections as well. But we're not doing that now. We're just, I'm trying to give you a big view. So like a bird's eye view looking down on, the, on this book of the Bible. So the first section is what we would call Solomon writing about or Kohelet writing about satisfaction that satisfaction won't be found in ourselves. And that's chapter 1 through 2, 26, through the end of chapter 2. Kohelet comments on things he's experienced in life, such as work, such as living wisely and self-indulgence. And at the end of considering all that vanity, at the end of all that habel that he writes about in between those two um, ends, we read his conclusion, which comes at, in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2. You could turn over there and look at it with me. There he writes, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also is from God, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? In other words, God is the one who gives things, and then he also gives the power to enjoy them. Simple conclusion from all the vanity that he just considered. The second section, we would title that, God is Sovereign Over All Things. And this is chapter 3 through 5, verse 20. Our text for this morning finds itself in this section. A Kohelet proclaims that God is sovereign over all things. But then he also presents objections to this doctrine, such as the problem of evil, such as the problem of oppression, the violation of Righteousness and justice, like we have in our text today, and all their different various walks of life. And his conclusion comes in chapter 5, verse 18. And there it says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Very similar conclusion to the last section, isn't it? You know, regardless of the evil that is in this world, regardless of the evil that we are confronted with, we should by faith enjoy the lot that, God, that we have because it, is, it comes from God's hand. God is sovereign no matter what it is. The third section, chapter 6 through 8.15, there he says, he's teaching us how God gives us the grace needed to enjoy vanity. And so here he contrasts Things such as wisdom and foolishness, uh, things like poverty and wealth. And he considers why it is that these things don't play out the way that we think they should. You know, we, we hear these things from time to time. Like, oh, he died, he, was, he died so young. Oh, the good die young. And really, you know, there's no good. But it's that sort of, you know, that paradoxical problem that, we're, that we are conf- confronted with in life. And so... His conclusion is given in 8.15, and I'm sure you can maybe guess as to what it is going to be. He says, And I commend joy for man, for nothing better, or has nothing better under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under 
the Son. He's a bit redundant, isn't he? But, but that's on purpose. Despite all this vanity which we may experience, don't make the mistake of thinking things are bad for him because he belongs to the Lord. Instead, you know, enjoy the simple things that God has given. That's what he's saying here, that despite all of this vanity, we can enjoy the life that God has given to us. Then lastly, the fourth section, he addresses here various objections and concerns um, are addressed. Things that maybe he could have put in other sections, but he's, he's left here to the end. No, in some ways, it's kind of like a review. But he, he departs here at this point from his previous conclusions, and then he gives us this one grand conclusion that sums up and concludes the whole matter, the whole reason as to why he's been writing. It's chapter 12, it's verse 13. And there it says, The end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So then, what is the point that Kohelet is looking to teach us as we consider the habel, the vanity of life? Even in a text as difficult as the one we have for this morning, what are we to think? Is, is all of life meaningless? Is life so troubled that it's not even worth living? No! That's not what he's saying. That reductionistic view is the logical outlook of the atheist. But for the Christian, there is great purpose and enjoyment to be had, even though, even through what we may be described as vanity. You see, the point of Ecclesiastes is this, is that everything has meaning. Everything has meaning. Life isn't futile. Even though things exist which are incomprehensible in some regard to us, life can be enjoyed. Because God is who God is, and we are His. Coalette is teaching us how God should be glorified in our responses to all of the vanity that he mentions. Because even though these things exist, church, we are blessed. We are blessed. We are in Christ. Jesus himself is our identity. The King of kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God is our Redeemer. We belong to His kingdom, and He is reigning, and He has all authority in heaven and on earth. So how then do we give God glory in the face of all this vanity? It's simple for Colette. It's simple for us, but I, I tell you, I fear that much of what professes to be the evangelical church has simply lost this, or just, you know, they forgot it, or maybe it's never really quietly been truly understood. His advice to us, is that we are to fear God and keep the commandments. That is our duty. That is the lane that we are supposed to stay in. And we need to understand what he's saying here. Fearing God and keeping his commandments are, are very in much interrelated. They are closely related. If you fear the Lord, you look to keep the commandments. It's that simple. It's not that we do it perfectly. And does anybody in here want to make the claim that they perfectly keep the commandments? No, I don't want to make that claim. We, we still sin. The idea here that he's, that he's talking about, that all of Scripture gets to, is not that we are perfect and without sin, but that we are characterized by a desire to keep the law of God because we know that it is good, and we know that living in such a way gives God glory. And as Christians, that is ultimately what we love to do. 
We love to give God glory. We love to see Him glorified. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That is at the heart of every Christian. Think of the psalmist in Psalm 19. You could turn to Psalm 19. It's just a few chapters over. It shouldn't be that hard to find. This is what the psalmist is saying about the law of the Lord and the fear of God as well. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. See, I think what most of, most of people who profess to be part of the Church of Christ has lost perhaps, or has perhaps never known is this doctrine of the fear of God. And that explains why so many professing Christians live like worldlings. Certainly, you know, the world doesn't have the fear of God. That's what we see in our text for this morning. But it also seems like many in the church are confused here. There are so many professing Christians who aren't living for and, and looking to see the lost one to Christ. There are so many professing Christians who don't seek to be salt and light, who don't look to impose righteousness and justice upon our evil society. And we need to be right on this matter because this lack of the fear of God is in part the cause of this, this fresh habel that Kohelet is addressing in our text for this morning. That the problem of oppression and the violation of justice and righteousness, there's no fear of God before the lost. That's why people are being oppressed. That's why righteousness and justice is being violated. And it's strange, because even as the church, in the church, we don't speak of this doctrine, the fear of the Lord, very often. And yet, Scripture has so much to say about it. Scripture speaks about it quite frequently. We, we read that it is the fear of the Lord, that is, is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. You can't even have knowledge and wisdom if you don't first fear the Lord. That is what he, Proverbs says that multiple times as well as the book of Psalms. We just read that the fear of the Lord is clean, that it endures forever. It doesn't stop at some point. It's caught up in the whole duty of man is what Kohelet says. So what is this fear of the Lord that seems to be missing? Well, it's not like the kind of fear that a person might experience if they turned a corner and then they came face to face with a 500-pound male African lion, you know, with a huge mane and, and a roar that would rattle your bones. It's not that kind of fear. It's much greater than that. That's a little fear compared to the fear of the Lord that we should have. Remember the sovereign God of the universe could have you end up in a den of lions, not just a den of wild lions, but a den of lions that have been trained up and brought up on the taste of human flesh. And he could shut their mouths. He caused murderous, bloodthirsty lions to behave like little cuddly kittens. That, that, was, that was the case with Daniel, wasn't it? Daniel gets tossed into the lion den. It's sure death, of course it is. These are lions that are, are made to kill and nothing. The king, you know, he would, he would 
put people who violate his law into that den. And then those lions in that den would, without fail, those lions would feast. But not when the sovereign God of the universe says otherwise. His control is meticulous. There's not a single thing which happens outside of his sovereign decree. Remember, that is what Kohelet has been getting at here at the beginning of this section at chapter 3. He's establishing that God is completely sovereign. And then through the rest of this section, he's in, including our verse for this morning, Kohelet is looking to have us ask questions about the vanity that exists despite this sovereignty of God. Well, the, the fear of the Lord that is lost on this evangelical culture could be summed up as a failure to simply take God at his word. I think that's what ultimately we could sum it up as. It's a failure to take God at his word. Are we doing that? Are we doing that? Are we taking God at his word? If not, we're not exhibiting or displaying a fear of the Lord. If not, you know, we're showing that we don't fear the Lord. Being more detailed, the fear of the Lord is a reverent love that understands God's grace toward the sinner who trusts in Christ and who wants to do what is pleasing to the Lord. It, it is a new covenant grace. And, it is, and the fear of the Lord is consistent with love, faith, hope, and spiritual joy. And where this fear is missing, there will be trouble. There will be sin. It can produce something as evil as the vanity of bureaucracy, which is described in our text for this morning. And let's look at the immediate context of this passage. Okay, so back at chapter 5, verse 1. Kohelet addresses what might be called the government of the church. It's the house of God that is in view when he encourages us to guard our steps when you go to the house of God. It's, he's speaking what we might call the government of the church. We have to watch our mouths, verse 2. We need to listen, verse 1. We need to take God at his word and not trust dreamers, not trust false prophets, not trust false religion, verse 3. Again, we need to be careful with our words. We can't make empty vows, verse 4 to 7. And then at the end of verse 7, there is this encouragement to not fear men, but to fear God. Remember, that is an important doctrine in Scripture. It is therefore important to Kohelet, and it is to us as well. The house of God, the government of Christ, the government that exists in the church, should be marked by a fear of God. It is a good thing. And that brings us to these verses that are considered difficult by many commentators and that I think would actually prove to be difficult if we didn't consider the context of the book. Because now, Kohelet turns his attention to a government in which there is no fear of God, as evidenced by its actions. In, in, the, government, in, the, excuse me, in the government of man, or maybe to keep the, the parallel going, in the house of Adam, there is no fear of God. And so what do we see as a result? Oppression. We see the violation of justice and righteousness. It is the habel, the vanity of bureaucracy. There's no desire to keep the commandments. And the people are looking out for themselves only. And it really it paints this bleak picture. The poor are oppressed. They don't receive justice. They don't receive righteousness. And what can they do about it? They're at the very bottom rung of the ladder. And what we know of human nature, apart from Christ, would tell us that if, if there was people under the poorest, then you know, they would probably oppress them in some way as well, too. But Coalette here is just offering to us the poor at the bottom, 
and they're oppressed. And they have people over them. A high official watches them, we read. And we know how politicians are. And I don't think that corrupt politicians have changed at all over the centuries. They make promises that aren't true. They make vows, just as those people in the house of God make vows and are instructed to, to do what is right, to, to, to make a right vow. Well, people in the house of Adam, they make vows, but they do it for personal gain, never intending to sometimes even to fulfill them. And the poorest people suffer for it. Remember, in the house of God, people were instructed to be careful with vows, to be careful with their lips. Well, in the house of Adam, broken and unfulfilled vows are commonplace. And what is the little guy supposed to do in it all? The text says the high official is watched by a higher, and there are even higher ones over him. So what is he supposed to do? He can't go to the official above his immediate official because guess what? They're corrupt as well too. The problem is systemic. Verse 9 is difficult, and major translations don't agree on how to translate it, but the general idea seems to be that in spite of a corruption in the bureaucracy, it is better to have an organized government, a king over the land to cultivate the fields, rather than this, this system which amounts to anarchy. You know, a few dishonest people may profit from corrupt practices, but everyone benefits from an organized authority. Of course, the ideal is to have a government that is both just and righteous, but man's heart being wicked, man's heart being fallen in sin, our desires being inclined to, to rebellion against God, this temptation to have dishonest gain, gain in a situation like that is always going to be there. Therefore, Philip Ryken notes, the best governments assume from the outset that people are sinners, and therefore that needs checks and balances to restrain unrighteousness. And he's, he's correct on that. But regardless of this, I think that we need to concede as Christians that the absolute best government is that of a righteous king who rules justly. And there is only one who does that. There's only one in whom there is no deceit. Ironically, for the nation of Israel, at the time of the writing of this letter, there are only three earthly kings out from having that very thing. They had the Lord God as their king. He fought their battles for them. Read Joshua, that is the case. Read Judges, that is the case. God's laws are always the best laws. There is no flaw in them. They're for His glory and for our good. And the tribes of Israel were blessed to be under them. If you look back in Psalms, go to check out chapter 33. There, the psalmist writes, in verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. They were, they were blessed. The ceremonial the judicial, the moral law, all of it was good. Granted, adherence to this law, it never reversed the curse of Adam. It didn't save anyone. That wasn't the point of it. It's not what it was intended for. It wasn't intended to bring salvation, but it was intended to carry along God's people while they were in this old covenant until God would reveal the gospel message in the new covenant in the person of Christ. 
It pointed to the new covenant, and it teaches us even now how we are to live in the covenant of grace through faith. And brothers and sisters, do we, do we realize, are we comprehending, are we understanding that the church is the nation whose God is the Lord? That, that we are the objects of God's saving love? That has always been the case. That it is the elect who are the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The first three chapters of Ephesians, they shout this. They just proclaim unashamedly that this is God's plan to, to bless a people, to save them through the work of Christ. This group even existed within the physical nation of Israel, didn't it? It's, it's the group that God calls a remnant in Ezekiel 6.8. You remember what's happening with Ezekiel at that point? He is depressed. He needed to read Ecclesiastes, I think, because he, he thought that he was the only one left. And so he didn't have joy. He was down and he was sad. And, got, and all the people of Israel had given themselves over to false worship. But God said, don't worry. There is a remnant. There is this, there is this heritage within the physical nation of Israel. And then in Romans 9, 6, this is what the Apostle Paul means when he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. No. No, God's word has not failed. His covenant promises take root in the hearts of all of those who, with faith, of all those who have received Christ and have believed in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. His covenant promises don't fail for them. We are his heritage. And we live in this tension in which we already have every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And there are even already people who are, while we're gathering here this morning, there are people who are in glory who have even a greater understanding of these, these spiritual blessings than we do and are simply just waiting for a glorified body upon Christ's return. But also, and especially for, for us who remain on this earth with breath in our lungs, we, we don't yet experience the fullness of the blessing. It exists in this tension. We have it. It's certain. It's true. But we don't sometimes experience it all the time because we are still in this fallen world and we still struggle against the flesh individually and corporately. And further, in this text for this morning, we see the reality of what Colette writes, that there is oppression and the violation of justice and righteousness all around us. And so what should we do, church? What is the course of action for us? What is the course of action for one who fears the Lord? Well, it's that we need to be reminded of who God is and who it is that we are. We need to be reminded that we are but pilgrims and sojourners in this fallen world. That's 1 Peter 2.11. We need to be reminded that we are ambassadors for Christ in His kingdom. That's 2 Corinthians 5.11 and 12. We're not just to sit on our rear ends and wait. We're not here to, to have the American dream. We're not here to have a, a secure life with all the comforts of an affluent society. Those things aren't bad necessarily, but it's not the main thing. The main thing, our chief purpose, is that we are to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. We are to do good works for God's glory. And we are here under Christ's authority to fulfill the Great Commission. Remember, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Him. We could have great confidence that we're not going to fail in doing the Great Commission because it's 
he that is charging us, he the one who has all the authority in heaven and on earth. We are to work toward righteousness in the land, but secondarily so. After all, how is it that righteousness will ultimately increase? It's simple. I'll say what it's not first. Righteousness isn't going to increase by passing new legislation, by putting forth um, more elections so we can vote the right guy into office. That's not how righteousness, a true righteousness, will increase. That's not what Kohelet is wanting us to do here. And it also wouldn't do us any good to simply pack everything up and just go move to some piece of land where nobody is and kind of leave and start over. That wouldn't do any good. We would just eventually have the same problem sooner or later. The heart of man is the problem. And there's only one remedy for the heart of man. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is only the gospel that will overcome it. It is the proclamation of the gospel, the heralding of the gospel across the land that will change men and women. And we can't forget that, church. We can't lose that. Now, the the lesson that Colette is starting to teach us here is that where, where money abounds, injustice will follow. And that's what we have here in where when money abounds in the house of Adam, not necessarily, not necessarily so in the church, but especially where, where money abounds in the house of Adam, injustice will follow. It is present. And he's going to continue that thought through the rest of chapter 5 as he considers money at a more individual level. But this injustice isn't only true for Solomon's day, friends. We don't have time this morning to consider all of the wicked governments that have existed throughout the course of history, but we don't even have to look very far. There is injustice in communism, in socialism, and yes, even in capitalism. After all, why, why do you think it is that these death factories, these altars of Baal, I'm speaking about abortion mills, why, why do you think it is that they still exist when everyone knows what it is that is really happening there, that it is murder. How how is it that this could still exist? Well, it's because the higher officials have money on the line. There is money involved in it. Going down further, digging deeper, yes, it is a sin issue that has a spiritual darkness, has blinded people, but it it displays itself, it manifests itself in the pursuit of selfish gain for people in power. Or what about our brothers and sisters, the Galvases and the Perezes? We've been praying for them, for Antoinetta and Teresa's sister Lupita and her husband Jorge uh, for going on almost three years now I think as he's stuck in a prison in El Salvador and for this exact thing his justice has been violated he's not being treated with righteousness he's oppressed in his province and there is an evil bureaucracy that is keeping him in jail and is placing the blame on him while the higher officials all get away and their pockets get deeper the system is broken. This is the house of Adam. And even though God is sovereign, even though he is in complete control over everything that happens, these injustices still take place. God's sovereignty isn't overthrown in these types of things. These things are happening because of it. Remember, that's the question that he's been considering in this section which started back in chapter 3. God has a reason and a purpose in the evil things that happen that often we don't get to see until it comes about. Sometimes you might not even get to see it in your life or your generation. It might develop itself in another's. And please note Kohelet's point in this. 
He says that when we see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of righteousness and justice, that we are to not be amazed at the matter. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. You live in a fallen world. You know, you're not of this world if you're in Christ, but you still live in it. So don't be shocked to see this kind of injustice. This is the depravity of man on display. And the best human governments in this age will be plagued by it always. But if you think of the, the response in the world, they do. They see this oppression and this injustice, and they get shocked by it. And they create, they have rallies, and they make little safe rooms so they can have a, a safe place so they can talk about these things and for, try to figure out how it is they can fix it. But the Lord is telling us, don't be surprised. In fact, the opposite is what should be true for us. We should be surprised and filled with great joy and hope when we see justice and righteousness flourishing. It is the grace of God that those things happen. It is the grace of God when a ruler deals justly and faithfully and righteously. It is the mercy of God when good laws get put into place. We've seen it happen. It's happened in Josiah's day in 2 Kings 22 where they rediscovered the book of the law and they read it in the, in the presence of the people. We've seen it happen in the abolishment of legal slavery in Western societies. We've seen it happen with the women's suffrage movement. I am hoping and I am praying that we will see it happen in our day with the ab abolishment of legal abortion. But these things, these kinds of rulings aren't the norm, beloved. God can do it. He's done it before. We have reason to hope and pray for these things because he is good and just as well. But these aren't the norm for the world that we live in. And even though we shouldn't be surprised by this oppression, we must also remember that God is still in control and that God is using and is capable of using governments despite their corruption. He is sovereign. His will is being done. Not only should we not be surprised then, but we should even be able to have joy, even in the face of oppression and injustice. God has proved this to us in his word. We're not just guessing about it. We're not doing philosophical gymnastics when we make this claim. This is the testimony of scripture. So a few examples. Okay, the first one I might consider is the example of Joseph. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. He had 12 sons. He was the, the first son of the woman that he especially loved, Rachel. And his brothers, you know, were corrupt. They were jealous of him, and so they devised a plan to get rid of him that was contrary to justice and righteousness. And they end up selling him into slavery, and from there, God's providence, he brings young Joseph all the way to Egypt, where he ends up running Pharaoh's kingdom. And the Lord brings about events that cause Joseph's family to come to him for food. And then this whole complex drama plays out in which Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and at first they're, they're terrified upon uh, finding out that Joseph is alive and, and even over them is the position of authority. But they end up reconciling and there are many tears shed between them. And then his father, Jacob, is even able to come and see him as well. But when Jacob finishes his race and his life comes to an end, the brothers of Joseph, they worry again because they're, they're, they're afraid now that, oh, dad is gone. Maybe he's going to enact justice upon us. And so... Let's see what happens. Let's go turn with me to Genesis 50. It's the first book in the Bible. Shouldn't it be too hard for you to find? Genesis 50. This is the account of Joseph and his brothers 
after Jacob had died. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. See, they, they know now what they did was evil. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. And don't miss this in verse 20, church. Then he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Don't miss that, church. Joseph didn't say, God allowed this for good. That's not what he said. Joseph didn't say that God brought good out of this really bad thing that happened, that God responded to it and worked some good out of it. It's a very different thing. It's God meant it for good. God brought it about. He orchestrated the events. This is the belief of Joseph. This is the belief of Moses in these inspired words. It's that God meant it. He brought it about. The point that God is sovereign and that God uses corrupt governments. God uses evil things that happen in the world to accomplish his good. He was working sovereignly through the free choices of the people involved and he meant it all for good. They meant it for evil. No doubt about it. God meant it for good. They in their freedom acted for evil. God, in his sovereign decree, meant it for good. Another example. Flip with me to Isaiah chapter 10. Okay, so you're going to go past Ecclesiastes very soon right after that. This is a bit more complex, but we still see the point that Kohelet is making about God being in control over governments. At this point, here in Isaiah... Israel is in rebellion to the Lord God. And he is using Isaiah to warn them about coming judgment lest they don't repent and turn from their wicked ways and then look to the Lord. Isaiah 9 goes into detail about the ways in which Israel was oppressing the poor. You know, the very thing that Kohelet is writing about here in Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9. And the Lord God's sovereign plan is, because of Israel's sin, is to bring a corrupt government against them as judgment. So if you're there in Isaiah 10, let's read. You can follow along as I read. It's beginning at verse 5. It says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not think, or excuse me, does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy, and to cut off nations, not a few. So you see what's happening there. God is pronouncing judgment on Assyria. There in verse 5, woe to Assyria. All the while taking credit for their actions. He's the first cause. Assyria is the rod of his anger. But then, verse 7, 
we see that Assyria isn't doing what they're doing, what they're going to do to Israel. They're not doing it because they're serving the Lord. They do it because it's in their heart to destroy. It is their will, their desire to bring about, you know, the conquering of these other nations, of these other kingdoms. They are simply a corrupt government that God is accomplishing His will through. Now look down to verse 12 in Isaiah chapter 10. It says, When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in His eyes. You see, it's, it's the Lord's work through Assyria. And Assyria isn't going to give God glory because they don't love Him. They're going to boast in their own strength. They, they think they did it. Look what we did. We conquered Israel. God is above it all. And He says, no, I'm bringing you to them. And because of your pride, because of your arrogance, curse is coming upon you as well too. The woe of verse 5 will be fulfilled. They are simply... Look, look down at verse 15. He... He says it so ironically. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? No, right? Assyria is is the axe in the hand of the Lord. The, The axe doesn't boast about cutting down the tree. It's the one swinging it that does it. And so God's sovereignty is not limited by corrupt governments, church. Have joy. Have hope. He's sovereign over them. One, one last example. The example in Acts. The book of Acts. Let's turn there to Acts chapter 2. I trust that many of you are familiar with this passage, so hopefully it doesn't feel like total review, though review is good for us. We, we need review. This is that famous passage, that sermon of the Apostle Peter in which 3,000 people at the end of it are converted. And in his sermon, he illustrates for us once more this principle that Kohelet expounds on, that Christians need not be depressed and lack joy when things aren't going their way. When oppression and the violation of justice are rampant, we need not lose heart. We can still have joy through these things. And not only does he express this, but he does it in the, in the highest way possible as we learn about a mercy, a wonderful mercy that is brought about and and taken from the most wicked evil that has ever been done on the face of the planet. You know, the murder of the only perfect Son of God. From that wicked act, God brought about the greatest good. So we read in Acts 22, excuse me, Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So you see it there, don't you? Jesus was delivered up by the definite and, or according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of the Pharisees. That's not it. It wasn't the definite plan and the foreknowledge of the Pharisees. It was the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God that brought it to happen. 
We know how this, the story of how Jesus was betrayed, how he was brought before the council of religious leaders, how he's brought before the Roman magistrates, and how at the end of it all, the corrupt world system sent him to the cross and crucified him and killed him. It was done, though, at the hands of lawless men, we read in verse 23. So not only does God have control over wicked governments, but he is pleased to use them within their freedom to bring about good, and in this case, the ultimate good, the means by which sinners will be saved. You see, church, this is the government of Christ. He is reigning. You may be going through things in your life right now in which they feel totally out of control. And let's be honest, it could be. It very well is. We aren't in control. God is in control. Perhaps there is even a violation of justice and righteousness being perpetuated against you. And Kohelet is showing us that these things are not greater than, nor are they outside of the control of God Almighty. Christ's kingdom extends and exists right now in this tension, where he is actually and completely in total control. But it seems to us, at least, sometimes like things are out of control. It may even feel like that to you. But consider Kohelet's words here. We shouldn't be surprised. This is the world that we live in. The house of Adam is going to be filled with all kinds of trials, all sorts of injustices. But God's plan is not going to be stopped because of it. God is sovereign, and he is working through these things to accomplish his good purpose and his good will. And he's not going to be defeated. He's doing it all for his glory's sake. And we can trust friends, in his covenant promises to preserve us and to sanctify us. And the Lord's table, which we will partake of here in a moment, it reminds us of these covenant promises. We might even rightly call this table, this act of communion with Christ, a kingdom meal. Not that, not that we're speaking of the extravagance of the elements involved in it, but we're talking about who it's for. The, the, the free offer of the gospel is to go out to every person in every place. But when the church gathers for worship and when we observe this ordinance given to us by Christ, it's not for everyone. Of course, anyone who is unsaved can be here at church. We welcome that. We love that. If you don't know the Lord this morning and you're, and you're just here learning, I'm, gl- I'm glad that you are here. But the observance of communion, of the Lord's table, is not for everyone. It is only for those who are in the kingdom of Christ, who are trusting in him as Lord and Savior. It's for those who are truly redeemed. It's not for seekers. It's not for spiritual people who want a little religion in their lives. It's for the saved. It's for those who affirm Christ as their king. And that is because, again, this table is a reminder of the covenant promises of God to us and our participation in them. We are engaging with the spiritual presence of Christ when we take the bread and the cup in faith as we are reminded of what Christ did to ratify the new covenant. So let me read to you from Mark's gospel account of Jesus instituting this ordinance, this, or said differently, a sacrament. This is Mark 14, verse 22. It says, And as they were eating, he, meaning Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
So that tells us something. Again, the Lord's Supper, communion, is not for everyone. It's only for those that are in covenant with God for salvation. It's only for those who are joyfully in His kingdom. If that doesn't describe you, as I'll explain, again, I'm glad you're here. It's great that you're here. But let this be a learning moment for you. Talk to those next to you about it. You know, uh, parents, if your children are here, explain it to them, maybe, you know, a little bit down on their level, if, if that's possible, I guess. You know, we need to teach our children what these things mean and what it signifies and so on. The Lord's table is for everyone who is a part of the new covenant. In other words, for everyone who is trusting in Jesus for salvation. And so, in light of that, I want to offer a, a warning or a caution, I should say, uh, for you who are going to take it. If you haven't been baptized after making a profession of faith in Christ, I would encourage you not to come forward and partake of the elements. Now, why do I say that? Obviously, it's not that you, getting baptized saves you. It doesn't do that. Baptism is something that we do out of response to God saving us. But we live in a culture that has fostered an easy believism, a, a sort of covenantal relationship with Christ without any substance. And you have churches that will pronounce a person saved by responding to a, a simply just a prayer or you know, walking the aisle or raising a hand, and yet these people never actually truly believe Christ. And then opportunities to be baptized come up and they happen, but they never get baptized. And so if that describes you, if you've been professing to be a Christian for a long time and you've never got baptized and there's been opportunities for you to be baptized, then I would caution you to maybe not take communion this morning, but instead to talk to me and to talk to one of the other elders of the church or someone here who, who you know who is following the Lord, who's been baptized, and to talk to them about it. Now, if the Lord has saved you and you haven't had an opportunity to be baptized since you received Christ, that happens. You know, we don't do baptisms every Sunday here. We do them periodically. And so if you've been, if you recently have submitted to Christ and you have trusted Him and you've received Him and there just hasn't been an opportunity to get, to get baptized, but you want to be baptized, then I would encourage you to take the elements, to, 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 to enjoy them and to, to take them because you are looking to one day take them or to be baptized. But the Apostle Paul offers warnings in 1 Corinthians for us to not take this meal in an unworthy manner and that we should also examine ourselves before doing it because when we examine ourselves, we are making our calling and election sure. You understand what that verse means, right? When I believe it's, Timothy, 2 Timothy, where he says, make your calling and your election sure. He's not saying, make sure you do good works. He's not saying, you know, oh, I hope you check, check off the list. You've been reading the Bible every morning. You've been praying every morning. You pray at night. I mean, please do those things. But that's not what it means to make your calling and election sure. To make your calling and election sure is your understanding that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That it's only Jesus and his life that saves you. It's not what you have done. Everything that we do, we do out of the love that God has given to us. And so we examine ourselves because we are warned in 1 Corinthians that taking this meal in an unworthy manner, which I think can only mean one thing, if you take it when you're not actually saved, then it makes you guilty of the blood of Jesus because your participation in the table is based upon a false premise. You're taking the elements, but you don't actually believe what they represent. And so you deny the spiritual presence of Christ in it. And so it's only then for those who are in the new covenant. With that said, you don't have to be an official member here at First Family Church to take communion this morning, but you simply have to be a member of the church universal, a person who is 
you know, born again, believing and trusting in Christ alone for salvation, and has been baptized upon that profession of faith. And there's one last instructive word that I would offer. The Lord's table is not for people who are without sin. You know, taking communion in an unworthy manner doesn't mean that you have unconfessed sin or that you've had a bad week or a bad morning. That's not what it means at all. We couldn't even, we, we give you 60 seconds to examine yourself. You, that's not enough time for you to remember all the sins that you have done that you've been guilty of. And you're not even aware, I'm not aware of all the sins that I am guilty of. So taking communion in an unworthy manner doesn't mean that you just have some unconfessed sin. As God's covenant people, we're still going to struggle with the flesh. And we're going to do that until our death or until Christ returns to take us home. And it's not your obedience which makes you right to partake of this holy ordinance. Do you realize what makes you worthy of taking part in communion? It's not us. It's not the things we do. It's Christ. It's that you belong to Christ. That is what makes you able to come and to take this. It's his perfect life. It's his love for you that he's redeemed you and justified you and is continuing to sanctify you. So if you're trusting in Christ for salvation and you find yourself struggling against some sin, and I trust all of us are, if we're not struggling against some sin, I don't think any of us have arrived. Right? So if you're struggling against some sin this morning, then I encourage you, to, if you're in Christ, and you feel repentant over that sin, I would encourage you to take, partake of the elements and do so in faith in the hope that God will give you grace to put you know, the sin in your life that remains to death. And so at this point, I'd like to invite the worship team up. I think they're here. Are they back there? They are, okay. Are they watching me on the new live feed? Okay. Hey, guys. So I'd like to invite them up. They'll be leading us in a song while we observe communion. And while they lead us in that song, which we should all take part in singing as well, we'll all have the opportunity to come forward and take a piece of bread and then also a cup of the fruit of the vine. If you guys can remember to grab a piece on your way up too. The, the bread represents the body of Jesus that was crushed for us. The cup represents his blood that was spilled for us, that was shed for us. And so you'll come down the center aisle and you'll take both elements and you could, you could take them right here and then. You could eat them and ingest them right then. Or you could go back to your seat and you could do it there, whatever feels comfortable for you. But just know that we're not going to do it all together like we do on the other way that we do communion. And, and so um, when we sing as well, you know, I would encourage you guys to sing along as well, to, to be worshipful in that time. And, and, but you know what? We're not going to take it together. You take it on your own when you're, when you're ready in that. Uh, before we read scripture together, before I ask God to bless the elements, we're going to, again, like I was saying, we're going to spend some time in silent prayer. If you're going to take communion, you know the Lord, you can pray. You can talk to him. And so we'll take 60 seconds or so just to, to do that, to examine ourselves, and then I'll close us in prayer, and then we'll read a passage of scripture together, and then the band will lead us in one last song. Okay? So let's, let's pray.